So since Easter, we spent four weeks looking at the resurrection of believers, and then last week in preparation for Pentecost, we began to read together about the Holy Spirit. And today, I want to examine what we might call the pitfalls of Pentecost, if you can imagine such a thing. Full disclosure, I'm a charismatic. I believe that having emptied himself and having taken the form of a servant, Christ was equipped and empowered for everything that he did with the Spirit. And I believe that that same Holy Spirit does the same work in us today. In our gospel reading, you don't need to look at it, I'll be very brief on this, but in our gospel reading, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ breathes on his disciples and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. This word for breathing is a rare one in scripture. It is reserved for the type of breathing that only God can do. The Greek version of the Old Testament uses this word for breathing just once to describe what God did to Adam in creation when he breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living man. There's a similar word in Ezekiel where God breathes or prophetically says he will breathe into the valley of dry bones and they take on flesh and come alive. This word is a life-giving breath-given, resurrection word, doing in just one word what I believe Paul is doing in this entire section of the letter, and that is tying the resurrection to the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church today. He does it again in Romans chapter 6. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, with his Spirit, we can do what he did and indeed even greater things than he did, if you can imagine such a thing. If all of this seems a bit much, I don't think it is, but if it does seem that way to you, at a more foundational level, it is the Spirit who calls and convicts and conforms us into his likeness every day. And if that seems a bit much, and it isn't, at the most basic level of all, it is only by the Spirit that you convert and are saved in the first place. Look with me, please, at 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Scripture is plain. There is no such thing as an uncharismatic Christian. The ancient world had the idea that only a few charismatic folk with a little C would get up at the front and do something weird and have an ecstatic moment and everyone else would watch. That is not what Scripture reveals. Scripture says regarding all who are ready for the resurrection, what we call resurrectionists, verse 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Every single one of us is called to manifest the Holy Spirit. Phanerosis, it means an exhibition of the Spirit. Resurrectionists are exhibitionists, full stop. So for the avoidance of doubt, what kind of a Christian am I? I'm one of the Bible ones. I'm one of the Jesus ones. That means I'm one of the Holy Spirit ones as well. And I think we're all just a little bit Pentecostal. But what are the pitfalls of Pentecostalism? What risks 
do we face as those who are spirit-filled? Don't forget the context of 1 Corinthians. Go way back to January when we were looking at chapters 1 through 4. Remember theirs was a divided and competitive town. And so in chapter 12, when Paul starts to talk about spiritual gifts, he says, although you are a gifted church, which indeed all churches ought to be, do not use your gifts in the way that the world would use them, to promote yourself or to put others down. But rather, verse 7, for the common good. I just want to make two points about that, one theological, one practical. So here we go, the theological point. Verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. Variety, same, variety, same, variety, same. It's a rhetorical device emphasizing the point. And it's a Trinitarian construct, one spirit, one Lord, one God, double emphasizing his point that no matter who you are or what you do, every single varied gift is all empowered from the one common place, the one unified place, the Holy Trinity, God himself. Then we have a list of spiritual gifts, verse 8, wisdom and knowledge. Think of revelations from God. It might be something in your mind. It might be a direction to go to a particular scripture, a word or an image. Faith could be faith generally, but it could be faith for specific things. That sense in your heart that God is calling you or calling us to do something in particular. Uh, when we were planning our building development, someone with the gift of faith said, I think God wants us to do this thing. And we tested that idea. Healing and miracles, just like Jesus did, just like Jesus said. The ability to discern between holy and demonically inspired ideas. We're going to let go of it and allow the spirit to manifest in the church and people are going to get up and say stuff. Sometimes they're going to be wrong. And we're going to need to be able to discern, is this something of the Lord or something of the enemy? to speak in languages you've never learned, and to interpret such things as well. Some spiritual gifts are not much use without a corresponding gift to go with it, and God provides them all. There's another list at the end of this chapter. Uh, some of the gifts are a little bit less exciting. We've got teaching, helping, and administering. Some spiritual gifts are far less showy. But, verse 11... All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. In other words, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Amen? Let's see if they said amen. To illustrate the point, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. As our bulletin cover depicts, the controlling metaphor of 1 Corinthians is, is a body. He says the church is a bit like a, a body, and uh, its members are a bit like its parts. There are many different types of part within a body, but they all belong together. Is that how the Corinthians thought? Probably not. Corinth 
was a divided and competitive town. The Corinthian church was highly gifted. It's likely that their church wanted certain types of people to join, that they promoted or sought after certain types of gifts within their church. They valued some more than others, maybe even rejected some versus others. And so Paul says the church is like a body. And if the church is like a body, and we are like its members, how did you join? How did you get in? How did you become a member of the body? Was there some kind of recruitment drive? Was there a basic training course? Was some kind of assessment made before we let you in? Absolutely not. That's not how you got in. You didn't get good enough to join and then join. Verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. It was done to you. Pause the story. Let's talk about baptism a while. Now, baptism, it's a, it's a water image. It means to immerse. Baptizo, the verb, I baptize. Uh, literally was uh, an immersion. It was a word they used often for the dipping of cloths into a vat of dye such that they took on the, the color or the stain of the dye. We've been baptized, immersed in one spirit into one body. And so we now have taken on this identity of the body of Christ by immersion, not by application, not by passing some test or being good enough. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Forget the gifts for a minute. It doesn't even matter what kind of identity it was that you felt you had before, even deeply divisive identities. Which, by the way, different subject is not where identities come from in the first place. Identity doesn't come from race or job or qualification, but from God himself. All members, regardless of how you might identify hitherto, are now identified by Christ and in Christ. By immersion in him, we take on his image. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Another water image, drinking. Uh, Potitzo this time. It's like our English word potable. Uh, Think drinkable is what this word means. In fact, actually, the word literally means to irrigate, and it was the word they used for the flooding of a field with irrigation channels so that the crops would grow. So we have two water images right here in verse 13. Dipping or immersing, and flooding or drinking. Therefore, what I'm about to tell you is going to sound just a little strange. Even though he's talking about baptism, and even though he's talking about water, He is not talking about baptism in water in verse 13. Read it again, and this is why we love Scripture open in front of us, so that we can see what the Lord says. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, and all were made to drink of one spirit. There is no mention of water here. In spirit, of spirit. He's talking about the much deeper baptism in the Holy Spirit. Not the baptism in water that merely points to the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We join the body. We join the church 
through immersion in the Spirit, through baptism in the Spirit, through drinking of the Spirit, through imbibing and being saturated with the Spirit, through being flooded in the Spirit and overwhelmed with the Spirit. Baptism in the Spirit is how you get in. It's the same Holy Spirit who called you. It's the same Holy Spirit who equips you. The same Holy Spirit who empowers you to do the things you do right now. That's the theology of chapter 12. You're called and you're converted and you're equipped and you're empowered by the Spirit. So what? Good theology. It's got to be practical. So let's push the point and ask, so what? The practical point. What would happen if instead of being incorporated into the body of believers through the sovereign will of the Holy Spirit and then equipped as he wills, what if you had to be the right sort to get in? What if we did have an application process or a training course? And if you reached the pass mark, we'd let you in. What if you had to have the right talents or the right background or do the right works or whatever? And only the highest functioning sorts of parts belonged. Remember that the body is Paul's primary metaphor in this book. So let's just think about our physical bodies for a moment longer. Verse 14. Feet can't say, because we're not hands, we don't belong. Ears can't say, because we're not eyes, we don't belong. Have you ever had dust in your eye? You ever had like a bit of grit or something in your eye and what that feels like? Imagine walking to church by eyeball, treading on them. How would that work out for you? Have you ever driven your car and felt just a little bit aggravated by another driver on the road? Imagine if you could only operate your motor vehicle with your emotions. How would that work out, do you think? Couldn't see? Couldn't operate any pedals? I know you guys have automatics over here, but there's some work to do with your feet. You couldn't steer with your hands. You could just feel how your car was going to work. Stupid. But we do this all the time in the church. That's how we run the church. I have seen people revere fellow members of the church and put them up on a plinth and look at them and, and admire them and say, well, I couldn't possibly be like them. They're amazing, especially prominent members. People do it with pastors all the time. Our job is to try and force you to never do that with us, and we achieve it by constant bungling. But uh, many people worship their pastors. And we conclude because we don't measure up to what they do. Brackets what we think they do, because we don't really know what they do. We can only guess. We don't belong. Not like them. So Paul says, don't so look up to the other members of the church that you conclude that you don't belong because you're not like them. And he puts it the other way around in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Don't look so down on other members of the church. You conclude they don't belong because they're not like you. The enemy would love it. For us to believe that someone doesn't belong. Can you see that in the passage? Can you find that doctrine in scripture anywhere? I think not. 
So you're more into prayer and they're more into mission and you're more active as a server. They're more creative in their minds. You drive up to church using your hands and your feet and you see every little weed in every little flower bed on the way up. They come in and they see every little ding in every little pew and bit of wood that needs to be polished. You like to welcome at the beginning of the service. They like to tidy up at the end. You run the sound desk and they say, shush. Well, that's how it is. Those differences are prima facie evidence for the proposition that you do indeed belong. Because who would do that thing if you were not here? The church would be dismembered, traumatically amputated by your absence. I love the message, quote-unquote, translation of verse 18. An enormous eye or a gigantic hand wouldn't be a body but a monster. There are many churches in this world that look a lot more like Mike Wazowski from Monsters, Inc. than they do like Jesus Christ. Just a great big eyeball on feet, you know, Mike Wazowski. Does he even have, a, does he even have eyelids? Just a hideous eyeball. Variety is vital. We don't want 250 eyes. A spider. And this variety points to the good news. So we'll conclude with that. If it turns out that activities and identities and your usefulness and your goodness doesn't really matter all that much, that it turns out there are no qualifying characteristics to enter the church, perhaps that means there are no disqualifying characteristics either. Perhaps anyone can belong. We've been watching a dating show as a family, and uh, I won't say too much about it because it's a rich trove of sermon illustrations. So uh, brace yourself for five or six more in the coming weeks. But uh, on that show, it's really good. Uh, On that show, two contestants did something incredibly wrong. And then everyone gets together at a dinner party to talk awkwardly for three hours about how how awful these people are. And They talked about what these people had done, and and one of them said, there's no way back for you, not after what you've done. Like all the pastors are like, oh, this will preach. Um, There's no forgiving this. Oh, it gets better. Um, you, You have to leave. You don't belong, not after what you've done. I can't look at you anymore. I will never speak to you again. You make me sick. The church does not work that way. I wanted to just get into that dining room and say, come to church, we'll take you. If you've sinned and you've suffered from the shame of sin and you have concluded that because of that you don't belong, the good news is that you can belong because of the grace of Jesus Christ. If you've suffered from addiction or or maybe some recidivative pattern of sin that you can't quite break, And you've struggled daily to do the right thing. And maybe sometimes you've done the right thing, but a part of your heart has wished that you could do the wrong thing because there's still some comfort in that old way. You sometimes feel as a result of these things, you don't belong. You feel like a weird part of the body. Where does this go? Like an ear stuck to an arm or something. I don't quite fit. Christ has borne that shame for you and imputed his identity upon you. 
by his spirit he's washed you clean. By his spirit he's called you into something entirely new. He's immersed you into himself. You come up out of that baptistry. You've taken on this new identity. Stained, washed with his identity. And he's equipped you exactly as he wills. Those gifts you have, regardless of how developed or undeveloped they might be, are precisely the gifts that he wants you to have. And he called you into this church because they were missing. There's no one like me. That means you belong. What you think is worthless could well be the very thing that our church needs the most. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the gospel of grace and the present active power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts today. So Lord, we're bold to ask for a new measure of your spirit. Indeed, with each call to draw near with faith, being an altar call of sorts in the Anglican Church. I pray this morning as we come forward that we would be receptive to the, to the work of your Spirit. I pray, Lord Jesus, that uh, our kneeling at the rail would be a powerful moment of, of restoration, assurance of forgiveness. And then having fed us, that you would send us out from this place equipped for every good work to which we've been called in Jesus' name. Amen.